So we're already recording. Oh, I always have to warn people. I just like to start. No, I actually appreciate that. It's the most authentic conversation we find. It's just you and I reenacting, digging the knife out of your back. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't like that for him, so it's not a big deal. (laughs) I would never actually. No, of course. Do you want to introduce our guest, Allie? I would love to. This is Emily Steffen. She is starting a coffee shop down here in Detroit called The Gathering. It'll be open... End of November, it looks like. Ooh, that's so exciting. all of our Wayne State listeners will have to check it out once it opens. You know, head down here in December, get your caffeine in. She'll have Wi-Fi, so you can do yes. all your last-minute papers. <laughs> get those done here while you're hanging out. Would uh, have accommodating hours for your exam times, too, during the Ooh, semester. So smart. What will those look like? Um, normal hours, except for one specific night, we're going to get a 24-hour um, days, because wow. I remember in college just trying to find places in Chicago that were 24 hours, you know, like, you can only be on campus so long um, yeah. to, like, study and do those projects, so just to have a different environment, I was like, well, how cool would it be to just, like, offer that to students, you know, regardless, because even Wayne State, there's other colleges here, too, so right. it's, like, we have people from all over the place, whether it's you're doing online schooling, you're doing, you're at Wayne, um, you're at another university, you're just kind of looking for a place to get away. So yeah. like if we could do something really cool where we're offering not just like 24-hour days or like a day, um, but doing something like intentionally too during that time. That I've yet to think of, but I'm like, just something to like offer people. Right, or it's like show a university pass and you can come in, it's going to be quiet. Yeah. We're not going to have like, you know, you can have your headphones in. Yes, it's gonna yeah, be it'll studying. have to do, we'll have to figure out something specifically where it's like show your ID or university pass so like, this is for students specifically and mm-hmm. only. Um, that way it's not like crazy up in here at like yeah. 2 a.m. But right. yeah, just like there's so many ways through a coffee shop business model that you can really accommodate and care for an array of people. Mm-hmm. You just have to take the time to understand like what are the needs of the people around you specifically and how best can you cater those needs to a model like this. Right. So... Tell us a little bit about your background and maybe what you studied in school and, and how you came to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, it took me probably about eight months into this business model development and trying to get this off the ground before I actually acknowledged that I'm trying to actually create an extension of the home that I grew up in for people. Okay. And it's kind of funny, like, coming to that acknowledgement because you're thinking, okay, I had no idea I was going to go into entrepreneurship. Right. Um, my degree is I have a bachelor's in urban intercultural studies. Okay. And I have two minors. I have one in adolescent um, studies and psychology studies and a second minor in political theology. Huh. So um, none of those state, like, entrepreneur. Um, they're more so, like, people-oriented um, focused on, like, nonprofit work or specifically, mm-hmm. like, youth nonprofit work. Right. And so, um, I just grew up in a home that was very inclusive and a home that for the first seven years of my life, even though like Bay City isn't really something that is like, oh, this is like impoverished really, um, just like any city, there is like good parts and bad parts and my family just, we weren't really wealthy Mm -hmm. growing up. And so the neighborhood that I lived in there was a significant need for people, specifically kids, to have a space that cared for them. And our little tiny home was that. Okay. You know, we, it didn't matter if it was like dinner time or we were having a family birthday party or it was the weekends. 
kids were at our house at all times. Wow. They were inside the house. They were in whatever, the front yard. We didn't even have a backyard. Like, it's called a backyard, but literally it was like a cement block that led into the alleyway yeah. type of thing. Um, you know, to the extent of where, like, I very much remember we had, like, one young girl who was my age, who was five, and she was responsible to take care of, like, her one-year-old sibling. Mm-hmm. Like, these are the needs that were in our neighborhood houses across the street, you know, like, deteriorating and people are living in them. And so I just grew up watching, like, my parents care so deeply for other people. And you don't acknowledge it till you're, like, older of, like, okay, yes, this stemmed from their passion for this. Okay. Um, but I only had one sibling, so to grow up in a household that still had so many people surrounding us, and our, my, watching my parents set that example, for me, was really special because when I was seven, we completely did, like, a 180, hmm. and my dad, like, got his master's in teaching, and my dad had been working for um, the public school system, and just things really changed drastically we went from this lower income neighborhood to like a high middle class neighborhood okay it was like 99.8 percent white and so it was such a drastic turn from where like i grew up at the time and the neighborhood we ended up moving into did not have any of the needs that the neighborhood i grew up in had and so seeing that transition my parents then went into really focusing on kids who were in foster care. Okay. And we didn't fo- we weren't a foster home, but my parents worked with a nonprofit called Royal Family Kids that really specifically focused on putting on camps during the summer for kids mm-hmm. ages seven through eleven who were either currently in the foster care system or who had been adopted. Um, Royal Family Kids also associated with like a mentorship program with the schools throughout the year, so it wasn't like a one and done type of thing. It was right. a very relational. So even though they had moved away yeah. from the community that they kind of built and helped mm-hmm. nourish, they were still wanted. They were still yes. dedicated yeah. to giving back. Yeah, and so I just kind of grew up in a household that no matter what financial position we were in or where we were living, my parents set this like image-bearing example of you will intentionally choose to care for people mm-hmm. because as human beings, we're created with the need to be in relationship with one another and we ultimately are better together than we are alone. And so I grew up with that example. And then when starting like this project, I didn't realize how much of that mentality and how much of a recreation I was trying to make of the home that I grew up in, you know, in my developmental years. Right. That was really like finding a need, creating a space that was inviting, but also met people where they were at mm-hmm. and were telling people like, you are worth it. Mm-hmm. And so going to school, I had no idea specifically like what it would look like for me to be working for a nonprofit or like what I wanted, but I knew that I was passionate about three things. One was servanthood, which obviously came very much from like the example of like my household, my family. Two was artistry. Everything about like how I think and like what I do stems from this like passion to create. Um, And then three was the concept of just loving people. And I think service and loving people, they intertwine, but they're also two different categories. Right. So um, I've spent so many years of my life working with youth, whether that's, you know, I lived in L.A. and I was an administrator for an emancipated youth home to working with youth in Chicago, um, 
and integrating that with like the school system, something that I'm doing here currently right now. So I figured I knew that I wanted to be in cities. I needed to be in a city, not just like want, like I function best in a city and I don't know how to function elsewhere because it's where I not only thrive, but I think cities give the best perspective of humanity. Hmm. And that's the setting I wanted to place myself in, and I felt like I could give myself best to. So, this coffee shop came from the idea of I'd already been in the coffee industry for years okay. in Chicago, and I was I'd experienced what it was to be on the consumer end. You know, in high school, Bay City had its first third wave coffee shop that opened, um, and. You're like, okay, this is a really amazing, like, setting to actually, like, be in, mm-hmm. um, even in high school, to, like, have a space like that, but then to experience, I, vis- I visited hundreds of coffee shops all over the world at this point, um, and seeing, like, their purpose and their mission and the way that they've communicated that, but also being on the opposite end of being behind the bar and the intentionality that that calls for you. Um, the relational aspect of that job, the artistry of that job, and like if you really put heart into creating a space for people that's well thought out and intentional, it can create a lot of change and impact for people in a community. And so ultimately, that's kind of where the idea like sparked. Okay. And now it's actually happening. Wild. It is wild. Oh, I get to ask a question? Sure. I I usually ask a lot of the questions. No, I liked it. It was a long walk, but that's okay. Yeah, I was like, it's just a long story. But what makes you, like, going... Because, like, we went to the same high school, so we had a lot of the same experience. Not the same experience, but a lot of it. What makes you pick Moody to go to versus, you know, while everyone else is talking about, you know, U of M or Michigan State or... You know, going down different paths. What makes you go? No, I'm gonna do this. Uh, it was a combination of things. One, Moody has like one of the top urban intercultural programs like in the world. Um, it's like very much geared and intentionally placed in Chicago. Um, so it's like one, I'm not only getting an education in urban studies, but I am actually placed in an urban setting that is forcing me to like be involved in the city not exactly that I had to be forced because you know me I'm like I'm not be part of everything um, I just like want to learn and I want to gain perspective and I want to understand and know um, so it was a combination of that it was a combination of Clive Cragen who is the head of the both like intercultural and urban intercultural studies program at Moody he was just somebody who was just like so intentional and wasn't teaching from like a textbook perspective was teaching from the actual perspective of living through it um so it was like you have a professor who's obviously passionate about what they're teaching but they have also experienced it and are currently living it out um and are walking with you through it and are seeking Mm -hmm. for his students to not only leave with this degree and go out and do but from like the first class was challenging us, like you will place yourself in the context that you need to be placed in in order to be able to gain as much perspective as possible and also to leave being the best people that we could possibly be. Um, and the thirdly, um, you wanted to be different. No, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I wanted to get out a little bit. Um, 
I feel you. Yeah, I wanted to get out, but my faith is very much like a huge aspect of who I am. And so for me to be able to have an education that was very much rooted, obviously, in like the studies of like the urban intercultural studies aspect, um, I also was able to take a lot of classes that allowed me to have like a biblical theology degree that accompanied my program. Um, which I think is great because, like, as an adult, you need to figure out what you believe and why you believe it. You know, just because you grew up in a household that was Christian doesn't specifically mean, like, that that is, like, your personal belief until you are forced to have to figure out why you believe what you do. And for me, it was, like, leaving high school was the first time where I was, like, okay, like, I am no longer in a household that is, you know... Not, not that even my parents told me what I had to believe, but just, like, you are now going to have to choose, like, is church going to be, like, what you're going to invest in? Is this mm. something that, like, you believe in to the point that you're, like, my perspective and, like, aspect of my life is going to be integrated out of this? And if so, why? And I've never been forced to figure that out for myself. And I was like, I want to figure out what I believe and why I believe it and meet my doubts in that and figure them out. Um, and it made me, it challenged me. It challenged me to do that and to figure things out and to figure out why I believed what I believed, but also to be someone who exists with that type of belief and with other people and not force that upon them, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that was really beautiful and I wanted to be challenged in that and I wanted to concretely have an answer for why it is I believe what I do, but also respond with my faith in a way that maybe people haven't really seen from the church, um, in a way that's been receptive and caring and kind. And I was like, I don't want to be a part of the church that has created profound hurt for people. I want to actually be the opposite of that, which is, I think, what that faith is all about, um, and kind of renew people's perspective of that. Not in not in order to specifically be like, you should believe this, but just to be like, I fully acknowledge what has happened and I am so sorry that this is what you've experienced and I want to be an extension of this faith that shows you something different. Hmm. Um, and so I knew that that was going to be a part of my perspective and that was how I wanted to leave school. And I'm so grateful to have left with that degree and also having these answers that I had been seeking for myself personally. And it's funny because I actually didn't get into the school um, the first time I applied, I literally was like, I am going to the school, and I was so stubborn, and I didn't apply to any other college. I was like, I'm going, and this is where I'm applying to, and I didn't get in. Um, wow. And, and so I literally got offered, like, online schooling, and then I would have to reapply again. Hmm. But I was so dedicated that, like, I was like, I'm doing it. So I did, like, part of their online program and ended up getting in and transferring onto campus. Nice. I wasn't going to bring it up if you weren't going to Oh, no, I totally was going to bring it up because no. I'm okay with it. Like... It's, it's a very competitive school, uh, or what it was at the time, to get into. Um, one of the cool things, too, is those who get into the school, their art education is paid for, so it's a full-ride scholarship. Okay. Um, which was super exciting, because I'm grateful to not have the financial burden now to, of the student loans that I right. could have had, because um, I know like starting this business would not have happened had I had those student loans. So, so we, earlier you walked us through the space and I'm looking out onto yeah. it right now. And um, I'm just curious like how you found the building and how you yes. found the space and working with, you talked to us a little bit about working with the city yeah. and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we found the space. Ironically, 
Um, the job that I had previously, I was the director of coffee and education for Populous Coffee Roasters. And one of my jobs... Shout out, Populous. Hey, Populous. <laughs> yes, huge fan. Um, we, one of my jobs with that title was to go to our wholesale accounts around like the state of Michigan and go to those shops, meet with the managers of those shops, figure out like what is their mission of their shop and what is the staffing needs, like what do their staff need to learn. And then to have training courses with their staff to better improve like their skill sets. And um, so one of the shops that carries Populous here in Detroit is the Commons and um, Mac Avenue. And Jesse, who is the manager of that shop, I had talked to him, met with him, talked to him about my vision before we even had a shop, before like even the business plan was actually like really developed well. And he had somehow met Nick, who is the owner of Eightfold Collective, which is a building that we're in right now, and found that Nick needed or was looking kind of for a tenant. They had a tenant here at the time, um, but knew that he wanted a community-based coffee shop and just overheard him talking about that. And then Jesse connected the two of us. And so at the time when I visited this space, it wasn't even available. Like, it wasn't like a space that like, was like, yes, this could for sure be it or would it ever be available? I have no idea. But met Nick and really saw that Eightfold had a very similar mission to what I wanted for the shop, which is very like community creative oriented, giving people the accessibility that they need to create, giving them a reason to come together through creativity. And obviously when you're making something, it's a very vulnerable process, but it also calls for voices to be heard and topics to be talked about that are really prominent in our culture today and society and so um, to be able to give people the means and the accessibility and the fuel to create while also giving them a space to have those really hard conversations where um, every voice is being supported and heard and listened to was very much a part of like Eightfold's existence and so in my head I'm like walked in and I immediately was like, this is going to be it. And I was pretty set and stubborn in my head on that one. I even, <laughs> you know, told my parents, I was like, it's it. This is it. Um, and so I just was like, how amazing would it be to be in a space that's already a staple for creating the concept of bringing people together through creative means. But also it was really ironic was um, my sophomore year of college in a Word document, I had written that I wanted to own an art warehouse where we were teaching people different like creative mediums and giving them a space to create in. Okay. And I had written that and I literally forgot about it. And a few months ago, I, as I had like a new computer, was transferring some things over, found that document and I'm like, I'm literally in an art warehouse that is giving people like the means and not only the means to create it, but also like teaching people in a way how right. to create in different mediums while bringing people together. And the fact that like my very first brick and mortar is in a location like this is insane to me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the dark room that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a dark room in our space um, that is like really meant. It's partnered, you know, with Eightfold um, and meant to kind of just give people the accessibility for film development 
which is really rare right now in Detroit. We have a ton of us as film photographers all, all over the city. And we've mostly been driving out to Livonia to go to Express Photo. Huge shout out to Express. You guys are my absolute favorite. And I know the people who going. own that. Yes. <laughs> and we will keep on going um, because their film development is just absolutely out of this world. Um, but outside of like Darkroom Detroit, which is another amazing organization, and um, you know, like the campus darkrooms, you don't, we don't have the accessibility to be able to really develop our own film here in Detroit yet. And so that space was already almost set up for it anyway. So it was kind of like a decision where Nick was like, would you be okay if this was turned into a dark room instead of being used for like a storage mm-hmm. room? And I'm like, 150% yes. Like it's literally going to be $500 for this to get like recreated back into a full functioning dark room. Yeah. And so we had um, two amazing people who facilitated that project and put it back together and now it's open to the community where classes are being run to just teach people how to develop their own film if they aren't familiar with that process. And if they are, they can literally just come here, sign up to use the darkroom, um, and they're literally paying at cost what it's going to be for the chemicals and like the paper in which they're using. And so it's just like really one cool, small way for our, this us as like a building and businesses in a, this building to get back to Detroit and to like the artistic community to mm-hmm. be like, here's one more space in which like you can create at, but we're not bringing your bank. Account. Okay. Like we're also giving you like it's therapeutic to me when I develop film, um, or take pictures, and so like, to be able. She's to, sniffing all those chemicals. Yeah. I'm just teasing. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, you caught me, so I'm really glad you read into it. Didn't know if you catch that. Um, it's okay to ask for help. <laughs> We've been friends long enough. Yeah. You need help. <laughs> Thank you so much. I just watch Euphoria. <laughs> what? Um, so you worked with a coffee wholesaler, right? Yeah. And so then, a roaster. Yeah. Worked at their shop. So you know all about coffee. Yes. Yes. So I do. what kind of coffee will you be selling? At the, yeah. At the Gathering Coffee Company. Yes. We're actually using Populous. Okay. Um, Something that was really important to me about the coffee that we were using was one, that it was consistent. Um, the taste and the consistency that you give people, you don't really think about it until you go to your favorite coffee shop and the drink that you order every time is made differently. Mm-hmm. And it is a totally different experience. And I didn't want people to ever have that experience here. I wanted to make sure that what we were carrying was consistent all around and that it was um, a brand that I was familiar with where I could prove that consistency to myself. Okay. Um, and I felt like one, not only working for Populous, but having had coffee, like I've had Populous coffee for like eight years, you know? And so just like, there's not a roast that I've had yet where it wasn't consistent. And, um, two, um, something that's really special about like Populous is they work with something called cafe imports and cafe imports exists. Um, they have like over 160 staff members that exist specifically to have relationships with the farms in which the beans are coming from. Mm-hmm. Not only to have a relationship with them, but to prove the quality of the product, but also most importantly to prove the care of the people who over the six years are walking with the kefir plant all the way till it's exported okay. um, and making sure that they're being paid proper wages, that they're being treated with great respect and care. Um, and so to make sure that I knew where my coffee was coming from, not just from like the roaster, but all the way to the point where 
we're working with the Kafia plant and the people who are taking the six years to develop that um, and making sure that like we're giving our money away to support something that is good um, and also the quality um, was extremely important to me and so um, little coffee lesson uh, coffee is graded on a grading scale from 0 to 100, but for it to be considered specialty coffee, it has to receive a rating of 88 or higher. Hmm. Um, to get an 88 takes absolute great intentional care over the six-year process from when um, the seed is planted and the kaffia tree um, like grows to its proper state, and then the kaffia um, cherry like itself ripens to the point where it can be like picked, and then everything else is gone through the whole milling process to get it to be exported to us. People don't know that it takes six years for a coffee bean to like develop and get to us. And okay. for it to have that type of like a, a grade, an 88 or higher, that entire six year process has to be done with such care. Um, and Populous only uses that like 88 or above for okay. specialty coffee. So um, I, value so many different like roasters all over the world um but it made sense to me one because i've worked with them um so not only do i like believe in their products but i believe in the brand and who they are um and it's cool to like support like if you have an opportunity to support people that like you know personally and believe in mm -hmm. and they have an amazing product i don't see any other reason to go really with something else okay so what, um, besides coffee, what else will you be serving? Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted the menu to do... Cookies? Yeah, Cookies. yeah, we got you. <laughs> Muffins? Um, I wanted the menu to, one, cater to... Me. To cater to me. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted it to cater to, like, the traditional coffee enthusiast who's just looking to have something like a dark, like, or to have a black coffee or mm -hmm. a cortado. But I also wanted to offer it to people who maybe aren't so familiar with that type of a menu, and I don't want it to be an overwhelming experience for them. Right. Um, and so something, obviously, too, in consideration of the menu was I wanted it to differentiate us. Um, and I really value tea as well. It's something that's just, like, very much a part of, like, my routine, um, especially, like, my family living in Ireland has like very much taught me about the importance of that and so um I wanted to like have a very also extensive like tea menu that played around with like tea non-alcoholic like cocktails and different drinks and food coloring and things like that and so um the menu is still definitely underway we'll have everything traditionally like macchiato cortado cappuccino all of those things mm -hmm. we'll have your oat milk um we'll have almond milk you know um, so we'll have those alternatives, but um, we're going to have, like, a really fun, like, tea menu that's really going to play with, like, different colors. It's going to play um, mixing, like, different milks and ingredients together um, while offering the option if people just want a loose-leaf tea. Okay. That will happen as well. Um, but then we'll have, like, different, like, fun specialty, like, in-house items as well um, from, like, Make Your Own Latte where I was able to see this in Brooklyn and I was like, I would love for Detroit to like experience this where um, it's an in-house special where basically you are given like four glasses and those glasses contain your four ingredients. The milk that like the barista has steamed for you, 
your espresso shot, your syrup, and then you have like a tonic water. And you get a mug as well, and you get to put those together just to oh, see like fun. the three and how they like, interact and how they interact and... together, and then drink it from there. Okay. So something as simple as that, um, to just having like seasonal items or Detroit's Futures Female is a brand that has chosen us as like their coffee shop. And so, um, like, their specific mug that goes with our logo um, will be served as, like, an in-house special where that mug is only going to be given out for that drink. Mm-hmm. And that drink's called, like, the Female Hustler. Nice. Um, which is really fun. And so, um, yeah, I'm definitely working on, like, the consistent specialty items that will be on the permanent menu. Right. And then having, like, seasonal drinks as well. You know, like, a really interesting, like, chider or something like that. So... Um, it's why like I appreciate the coffee shops that we have here in Detroit because um, I think they all do something a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, or like New Order does like cereal milk lattes. Um, I don't drink dairy and I don't normally like sweet drinks and I literally like will go out of my way to drive 25 minutes to just like get a cereal milk latte and drink dairy because I'm like the way that this makes me feel is worth it. <laughs> <laughs> now, is it just you or do you have any? partners or you know people helping you develop the menu or yeah so um when it comes to like the business aspect of things um, i have two really great um so i asked you about your partners yeah yeah so i um right now um i have like micro investors um specifically uh three um who own um small percentages of my company um i do own majority share of this company um, and when it comes to all of like daily operations, you know, getting this started, per- all of the permitting, um, developing the brand, all of that, you know, is something that I have done on my own. Um, I have three individuals in my life who are so gracious, who intentionally give me time when I need to process things or have like taught me about QuickBooks. You know, they mm-hmm. each of them owns their own individual business. So they kind of bring something all different to the table um, to be able to just offer so much like support and advice. Um, two of them actually own Eightfold. So the owners of Eightfold are um, investors and small partners in my company um, with The Gathering who have given so much like time above and beyond to help with the fundraising and help with um, just really getting this off the ground. And so um, it's been amazing just to know that like in this process, I've never been alone. Like if I needed to talk with people or needed advice or needed some form of help that there are people there to definitely do that um but for the majority of it when it comes to you know how the the last year um or the development of this has very much like been as the majority owner and as the owner of this company like that has been on me okay um so I don't ever like to use the term that I have walked alone because I haven't you know I've had these amazing like investors and partners in here who definitely have profoundly escalated the time of this starting and have brought this together um, in the way that it has. So um, long story short, yes, I have people in this who have been a part of making this happen um, when it comes to the daily operations and all of the behind the scenes of like getting these drawings going, the financial aspect of things, um, majority of fundraising, those types of things, that's all been on me. So the process of Permitting, LLC, working with the city, all of that is something that, like, I've done to get this started. Wow. That's a lot. So what would you say your goal is for this space, for this adventure, for this everything? What do you hope in 50 years you've gained? Yeah. 
Um, honestly, like I am going into this just like knowing gut wise um, that I know if I didn't try and pursue this project that I would think about it my entire life and regret it. So um, I have no idea if I'm going to do this, how long I'm going to do this. You know, I don't know if this is going to be a 10 year project and then um, I give it to one of the investors and they continue it on or I give it to somebody else who I know will care for it as deeply as I have. Um, or if it ends after 10 years or 20 years, or if this is something that like escalates and we have 10 locations and end up owning this for 30 or 40 years or whatever. Um, but even if like this was the only location, um, just to know that we've created a space that has positively built community in the city and has given back to the city, um, is literally why I want to exist, um, like any business, you need to be sustainable in order to make your mission possible. So that's obviously like huge and mm-hmm. very, very important. Um, but this isn't something that I'm doing because I'm hoping to get rich off of. If anybody knows anything about the coffee industry, if you don't have a roaster or you don't have a franchise, you are literally making like nothing when it comes to just like prop profit Mm -hmm. um you are obviously like making enough where like you're going to be able to like live off of and you're creating a healthy you should be creating a very healthy environment for your workers to not only be making a livable wage but also like for me like I'm going to be very intentional in this hiring process because to me as an individual um whether my baristas want to be in the coffee industry their whole life and want to be an extension and create something like this, Mm -hmm. or they're just look here because they need a temporary job. I want to make sure that like they leave the space knowing that they have become better people because of this job and that they have been intentionally invested in and intentionally cared for and are in an environment that is encouraging them. Because I think one, human beings are just worth investing in and if I'm going to have workers who are giving to a project that I'm this passionate about like they deserve to receive the time for me to be like cared for um and encouraged in whatever they're trying to do but two um I think you cannot serve your customers or serve people unless you know how to create a healthy environment for your team right um And so at the end of all of this, I'm like, I just want people for however long this lasts to feel like they found a place in the city that they've been able to call home. And that's like why we exist. I want people to walk in here, whether it's through their experience and interaction with me or the people working here or the way the space has just facilitated some form of comfort for them or through our events um, and the conversations we have here. Um, to just feel like they've also been hurt mm-hmm. and to feel like they've been cared for and to feel like they have a space to create in or to have like hard conversations in as well. And so to be like a community space just means to kind of meet people of all walks of life where they're at right. and invite them into like the, the big conversation. So, so there's a lot that gets written about in newspapers, mm-hmm. online, international media about Detroit, yeah. about Detroit mm-hmm. coming back. A lot of natives, mm-hmm. you know, they don't see that. Yeah. You know, they everyone mm-hmm. focuses on New Center 
and mm-hmm. Campus Marshes, mm-hmm. and we're not there right now. Mm-hmm. Your coffee shop isn't in those yeah. neighborhoods. So what's your perspective? Or like, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as one of those people? Obviously, I, I think that everything that you've said mm-hmm. is true, and you are very dedicated to the mm-hmm. community that you've come into. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I'm not trying to say, oh, yeah, of course. challenge you that you're mm-hmm. not, believing in those things but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things in the media that say positively and negatively towards individuals such as yourself Mm -hmm. and so do you see yourself reflected in those articles or do you think that they are getting people like you wrong Mm -hmm. young people coming into the city and and trying to do this work yeah yeah I think like there's a broad spectrum in between those articles and us um Mm -hmm. I definitely see like why those articles are written because I do think there are a lot of people who have come into this spot and have added to the gentrification of these neighborhoods um, without the intentional mindset of not what am I bringing into the community but what does the community need and I think that's where there's the difference in entrepreneurs and people who are coming here you either have a a mindset of what am I bringing in or Mm -hmm. you have a mindset of what are the needs and how am I going to meet them Um, for me I knew going into this very well that like that was a massive like presupposition that was being stated Um, but also like I'm okay like I I know the weight of what it is to come into this and if you don't do it correctly that it will create negative impact and to me I'm like I would rather not have this exist if it's going to create any form of negative impact for people So for me, I was like, okay, like you're about to go into a neighborhood that, yeah, like you've been doing a lot of like creating in, but you haven't been a resident and grown up here. Like so many of the people that are in this specific neighborhood of North End right now. Um, So for me, it was like, okay, well, if you're going to do this, then like the story of the shop is not the story that you've created. It has to be the story of those in your community. And also in order to create a community space, you for a, a neighborhood, you have to know what are the needs for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's been like, well, what can I do to intentionally make people in this neighborhood know that, like, one, I'm not just somebody who's coming here to tell you how it is and tell you how it's going to be, and I'm not somebody that's going to come in here and disrespectfully just, like, place themselves here without asking. Right. Um, And so um, some of the things that I've done with that is, like, I've gone to every single business within a one-mile radius and, like, introduced myself to everybody and given them, like, a little flyer that, like, takes them to our website but also gives them my contact information and told them, like, anybody who wants to sit down with me or has questions for me or concerns, call me, ask me to grab coffee or a drink or whatever – or feel free to email me and, like, I will have a conversation with you. Um, I've also been going door to door to, like, all the households within this neighborhood um, to, like, put a flyer in people's door but also start those conversations. Um, I'm a part of, like, a neighborhood block meeting here. Um, I'm a part of, like, the business, like, block meetings that go on here. Um, So I'm very much, like, aware at this point of, like, what are the concerns of this neighborhood? What are the needs of this neighborhood? And, you know, one of the things I was most nervous about coming into this was would the community receive this project or not? Um, and so it's been such a privilege to have seen such overwhelming support from the community. So people in this neighborhood know we're here and Mm -hmm. people in this neighborhood know that like 
we're opening and like what we're hoping to do. And so really, even though I want the gathering to serve the greater Detroit area, my focus and like mentality is really to serve like this one mile radius. Um, So to be able to like take what has been here, like this neighborhood specifically has been the arts district since the 1940s. So all of these like warehouses that people see around here that look like broken down or like they're not into or like that they're not being used. There's literally our collectives of us all over the place in these warehouses that are just like speaking through different art mediums and formats. Um, there's a ton of people community wise who have been here and grown up here. Um, but then there are also people who've moved in the last like five years who are seeking to integrate themselves into those communities in a healthy way and a respectful mm-hmm. way. And in a way that's, humble you know I think you just have to go into this being like I know nothing and I need to seek the perspective so that I can understand as deeply as possible going into this the stories and the needs and the accessible price points and to tell people I'm not looking to come in here and change things I'm only looking to be an extension of what's already been here and fill a need that not only have I seen, but you have stated. Okay. I also think that, like, uh, it's an unfair, like, label that gets slammed on a lot of young people who come into the neighborhood because the local residents love it when people come in and they buy the old houses and they fix them up and they restore them. What they don't like then is because you see young people buying those houses, then a big corporate entity is like, oh, I can make money off Mm -hmm. of building housing in this area. And that's when it becomes a problem. When people are interested in an area just as far as, you know, restoring it and revitalizing it, the people who live there love that because they like they don't want to see these houses in disrepair. They don't want to see, you know, their neighborhood falling apart. They want their neighborhood to look good, to be the place that is the reason that they lived there in the first place. And I think that it's just because that there's such a corporate mindset in our culture that immediately if you see real estate being scooped up by individuals, they're like, oh, I can make money. I have to get in here. I have to do this. Just like um, campus is a great example. There's tons of apartments around there that were just, you know, local, smaller places. And now they're building newer buildings because the real estate value has gone up in the Cass Corridor in the Midtown area. And then that's not because of, you know, the locals or like the students who are trying to move in there, that's because corporate entities are building these gigantic, new, expensive and overpriced places that now cost them. I mean, they just did an article like last spring about how can Wayne State students afford to live oh, I remember. Yeah. near campus. And the answer is no. Yeah. For the one. Yeah. Nope. Well, I live at home. I commute. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's no way I could come and move downtown. Mm-hmm. Not, you know. It's way, way less expensive for me to live out in the suburbs and drive into Detroit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, when we were looking at, like, apartments, like, in Detroit, like, we have, like, a two-bedroom, two-bath right now. And for the price that we would pay in Detroit, like, in the Midtown area, which is where I wanted to live because I like living there, it would have we would have gotten, like, a really small one-bedroom, one-bath. And mm-hmm. it's just, like, why? Like, what, yeah. are, what are we paying for? Right. Plus, we were, we were talking in the car earlier about the food deserts here and how difficult it is for people who live here to go grocery shopping and get access to uh, good food Mm -hmm. and water and things like that. And so that's going to... To me, my mentality is like, I am coming here to exist with what is here. 
um, and to support what is here. And so um, in like the neighborhood that I live in right now, it's really cool because there's an array of like urban farms. Mm -hmm. And so to like see those types of things develop, Detroit's beautiful because it is the largest square mileage city in the entire United States. We have so much open land that is available right now to be able to develop those things like urban gardens and to see that taking off um, is really amazing. Um, So yeah, I think like there's a long, long ways to go, but I think what's beautiful about Detroit is it is striving for unity and it is striving for peace. And we are all seeking, well, remember is that a lot of us are seeking to work together and creating that openness. Um, but I also think like coming into it, like there needs to be a recognition of just like the social injustices that have and are currently still taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, especially someone as like a white female, you know, um, going into this, like that was another thing of like, you know, not only am I seeking to, gain trust and build relationships about the business that I am starting and to get support for that. But I'm also seeking to gain trust and to let people know that I want, I want to get to a point with them that they understand that I am not here to represent the injustices that have been done to them by people who look like me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm not ever offended when I people are taken back because it's another white person coming into the city to change something or do something. And I feel the weight of that, you know, mm-hmm. often as well. And so um, I think there's just a huge responsibility on like my end, both as a business owner and someone young coming into the city um, and also being from the background that I am um, to just like be very humble and to see perspective and um, to be very patient and understanding and do what you can to create that form of healing. Right. And um, that's the ultimate use of your privilege. Yeah. You know, to everything you're saying Mm -hmm. is the right way of going about it. Yeah. And that you recognize where you come from Mm -hmm. and what that gives you in our world, Mm -hmm. as sad as that is. Yeah. And then using it to Mm -hmm. help the community no yeah. matter who that mm-hmm. community is mm-hmm. yeah because like a lot of people would never assume that like I grew up very poor you know mm-hmm. for the first years of my life right. and that um no one would ever know that like you know I've spent so many years living in Chicago and living in the southwest end and mm-hmm. living in LA and the thing you know things that I've seen and yeah. experienced and not that any of that gives me like greater right to say that I know things um but I just, I definitely feel the weight of what it is to come in as someone who is white. And I think you have to, you have to recognize like the absolute like social injustices and the travesties that are currently happening still in society and listen. Mm-hmm. That is like my greatest advice to anybody who like wants to do something like this. One, you need to ask as many questions as possible and you need to listen. Mm-hmm. So, no, I was just thinking about um, white privilege and what Dak Shepard says about it because I feel like it's it's well no just because I think he says it in such a way that's so poignant because it's so triggering for a lot of white people because and this is this is like what he says to him totally ripping him off but no one thinks about their life as not being a struggle 
Right. Like, like Emily was saying, like, I've been through my own struggles. And he, and I love that he says this. He's like, what white privilege is, is that your race and the color of your skin is not going to be one of the reasons that you struggle. Exactly. And I think that that's just so poignant. But also building off the whole, you know, what you were saying about people coming into, like, young people coming into the neighborhood and changing it and, you know, residents saying that, oh, nothing's going to change. I think the fact of the matter is, is those residents who have those complaints aren't ever going to move back anyway. And I think that it's easy for them to say, oh, well, it's never going to change, so why should I bother to move back? Because let's be honest, people of a certain age like to complain about anything and everything if given the opportunity. And I think that unfortunately people our age with any new idea are given that are quickly given the whole hipster label, Mm -hmm. like, oh, those hipsters moving in and changing everything. But hipster is unfortunately in this sense just a word to use people like Emily who want to come in and help. And I think that that's an unfair label that a lot of people are given sometimes. Right. And, you know, this city, both my parents worked in in Detroit Mm -hmm. and they're social workers, right? So, And I grew up coming to Detroit to different cultural Mm -hmm. events. Like, I was never... But I come from a suburban area mm-hmm. where most of my friends or their parents ne- have never stepped foot in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. So to hear, or that if they went with me to the DSO or the mm-hmm. DIA, like very, still very, you know, bastions of privilege mm-hmm. places to go. Yeah. But that it was like we had to beg their parents for permission mm-hmm. for my mother to take someone to see a concert yes. at the symphony, mm-hmm. which is just absolutely insane so I come from a background that has loved the city of Detroit mm-hmm. we didn't live here but we were always supportive of it we came downtown mm-hmm. not just for sporting events but all different types of things yeah. and meanwhile everyone around me we are we're not quite as not quite as white flight as Livonia because we're further out even mm-hmm. um, you know because if you look at when Livonia was uh, we Novi became a city in 1969 mm-hmm. Livonia started really growing in the 1960s that's when the riots mm-hmm. uh, happened and people left mm-hmm. right yeah. so I come from an area where you know those people aren't going to go come here and mm-hmm. most of their kids are not moving back here either mm-hmm. it's other people from other areas and there's such a divide mm-hmm. between I mean, my city will not approve buses, yeah. smart buses, mm-hmm. to come. They come right to the edge. To the edge. And yeah. the edge, I live right on the edge to where bus, buses mm-hmm. come. But they're, they're not going to come into the city. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that just, like, really, like, breaks me. Is like, yeah, there is this, like, massive two-fold divide, mm-hmm. you know? People who are just, like, choosing specifically to just, like, not acknowledge what's been going on. And then people who... Actually, there's a trifold. There's people who don't acknowledge or choose not to acknowledge what's going on. There's people who acknowledge what's going on but don't do anything about it. And then there's people who acknowledge what's going on and start to seek some form of reconciliation. Right. Um, and yeah, like even, you know, the nonprofit I work in right now, one of our like greatest like difficulties is convincing parents or people like to come in and like help what we're doing in the neighborhood because there's such drastic presuppositions about this city that are so wrong right they're like i've never felt safer in any city that i've lived in than Mm -hmm. i do in detroit um and i think like detroit really is beautifully representative um of just like a lot of like beautiful culture um Mm -hmm. we are obviously like the blackest city in the united states and i think it's amazing and i love that 
But that um, adds to the but, divide. Yeah, and uh, also, like, you know, there is a much less, like, lack of Asian population here than there is, you know, in, like, Chicago. Um, but regardless, um, the city, it needs people who are coming into it to be the third of the trifold. The ones who acknowledge what are going on and the one who are seeking reconciliation. Right. Um, and like regardless of like what people want to admit, there's always going to be like they're in, in us, there's some form of prejudice. Um, whether that's towards like racial prejudice or like one of my like something I was talking about today, like my friend with my friend Mike at coffee, I was like, because of the experiences that I have witnessed and the things that I've seen, my kids that I've been working with, you know, all over the U.S. in these cities or like the neighborhood that I like live in now and what I see, you know, I have, I have a young girl who I work with who lives in a house that's literally deteriorating and one block over year in Gross Point having mm-hmm. a $400,000 house. Right. And, um, you know, I have so many presuppositions about what people are like in gross point or like in the suburbs, even Mm -hmm. like my prejudice is towards that. Um, and that's wrong on my end too, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, that was something that I was like, my problem and like weakness as a person is towards the wealthier people. And like, that's even a problem as well. So yeah, well you can't um, choose who, where you're born. Yeah. Just like people who are born in poverty. Yeah. Their so, parents didn't want that for them. Yeah, right? so, so you don't. it's like we just need to be willing to have these really hard conversations of like, okay, you need to recognize right now, like what are your judgment and prejudice towards like what type of people and start sure. dealing with those. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Um, Does that mean you didn't like me when I walked through the door? Oh, I totally loved you. No. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> no, it's like, it's just more so even that area. Just like being, you know, in Yeah. Well, well that's in that well area for redlining and so, the history of... Yeah, it's you know, a lot of redlining. There's a, there's a lot um, of... Um, but I think it really takes, you know, young people, like people our ages, to sort of, you know, sway our parents. Exactly. And like our yeah, parents. exactly. We have a lot of responsibility, like right, right now. We're right. generation. And well, I was just at a staff in-service, and we were talking about... This is the first time the workforce has five, potentially your workplace can have five generations working at once. Mm-hmm. Retire people. Get all out the, of them. All the way up. My father is considered the silent generation. Mm-hmm. My mother is a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. My sister and I, my sister's just young enough to possibly be a Gen Z or a millennial. She's mm-hmm. on the cusp. We, the three of us are millennials. And then we've got the... Um, What's the or Gen X millennials and then Gen Z is coming after us? They're about eighteen now. They're entering the workforce, so we have five generations communicating, working, potentially working together, and we are the largest. We have, mm-hmm. have over as millennials have overtaken the baby boomers. We really needed to get it together and start voting. Right, I'm we, gonna we say. need to start voting. <laughs> Just shout out vote. We need, you know, Please. we need to start developing oh. ways for people to pay back their student loans. We'll so be doing we a discount for people who vote, by the way. Vote, there vote. You go. Discount on vote day. Bring in your voting sticker. Yeah. You know, and we need to fix this student debt problem mm-hmm. so that people can become entrepreneurs if that is a yeah. way they want to go. Yeah, like honestly, like invest I invest in their communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're regardless of whatever you think, we are a capitalist society. And if you are spending money, mm-hmm. you can use your, your spending power to mm-hmm. support a community mm-hmm. i mean to be honest i think that you know there's that big fear of the second recession or the third recession oh, yeah. or whatever coming mm-hmm. and honestly i it's think that a buyer's market well but <laughs> buy all that property 
But I think that this time, and I think that, um, you know, Senator Warren, and it's no secret, I support her, but like she said it herself, and, and Bernie Sanders has said it too, if we can bail out big corporations, why can't we bail out our students? Right. And I think that that's what you're oh, going to yeah. see this time, is you're going to see... Depending, I mean, depending on who's in office, and hopefully it turns blue, because that's also not a secret that I feel that way either. Sure. But that you're going to see that is instead of bailing out, you know, you know, whoever. Right. Whoever's it's going to be the students who get bailed out because right. they're going to be the ones that need it. Because then, like you said, that money that we're not paying on our student loans because they got dissolved will then flood the market and houses will be bought and right. it'll stabilize because we have all the spending power. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and think, of, and the other side of it is. I'm going to be finishing with a master's degree. So I know the two interns that were at the job I'm at right now as an intern got hired in, Mm -hmm. right? So that's my hope is I get hired in at the place I'm working. Mm -hmm. Great. That's fantastic. I've got all the institutional knowledge. Keep going with it. Well, they got hired in to the minimum level for like paid time off or like vacation days. So that's 20 hours a week. Well, I know what they make. So by the time I get that, that's after I've already got two master's degrees. Mm -hmm. I'll be making 22 grand. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. And then that is someone who has like a lot of family that's helping me and support. Mm-hmm. And I come from a, you know, middle-class background, mm-hmm. educated parents, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm going to be making. And then I, you know, you think about people that don't have a college, a college degree, maybe they didn't finish high school mm-hmm. and how much they're like, they're making. Mm-hmm. It's, this is, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah, they, like, make it very impossible for you to, like, exist. Even, like, small businesses. I'm, like, the way that we're taxed right now, like, Mm. they really almost, like, it's almost as if, like, they're so not for you that they're just trying to, like... They're against you. Yeah, make it, like, impossible for you to be in the green. Mm -hmm. Um, So, it's, like, very... It just doesn't make sense. Because if you were in the green, you could do... You could expand, you could hire more people, you could pay them more, Mm -hmm. whatever it was that you needed to do. Mm -hmm. You could have more free events for your community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just not common sense economics. Mm -hmm. And they insist that they know, people that are in power insist that they know what they're doing. Well, it hasn't really helped anyone, so clearly it's got to change. But do you? But do do you? Do I you? No, like the people in power. Do you? It's okay to ask for help. I'll be the wife sitting in the car with you like, do you know where we're going? (laughs) Should should we stop and ask for some directions? Yeah. Well, should we ask our final questions that we always ask? Of course. Wonderful. Go ahead, Alan. Okay. (laughs) We always ask, uh, what book are you currently reading? Mm. And what TV show are you currently binge watching? Oh, my gosh. Praise God for the last one. (laughs) Um, The book I'm currently reading is called The um, Dignity Revolution. And it is um, written by a Christian author. um, But I think it's very, like, relevant and good for anybody, regardless of faith, to be able to read. um, Just because at the core, what it's talking about is that if you breathe, you have dignity. Mm, um, and it's like following different parts of history and the history of our country, but also specifically challenging the church mm. to look at the way in which like historically it's changing to challenge it to be responsive in love and responsive in remembering like all people have dignity, but it's also challenging just like anybody. Right. As, like, true teachings true of Christ. Teachings of Christ. 
Um, and so I think regardless of like personal beliefs that like anybody could read that book and feel like they gained something from it and also like left being reminded of your own worth and like dignity that you you have as an individual um so I'm currently reading that and I'm also reading a book called Lake Superior which is basically like um, I like how everyone just looked at me. <laughs> we both looked at Allie like, oh, this is going to be a book. It's, Allie's it's a journal and poetry documentation from a woman who had spent like an array of time in 1966 at Lake Superior. And it's just kind of like her personification, like writings of like between nature and humanity mm. and also like what being in nature like taught her okay so i'm reading both of those that's currently cool. the library i work at oh we've got let's see that's living in a city um the library i work at i buy for the 800s which is um poetry and writing and yes. literature so maybe i'll look into getting that book yeah for our library. i'm always reading a poetry book or like a journal entry book and then something that's like challenging me okay um to be a better human and then, oh, the show I am binge watching right now is called Euphoria. Okay. Um, it's on HBO, kids. It's on HBO, so. Uh, um, I keep seeing, like, the ends of it because I'll go to watch okay. something else and it's yeah. the ending. Um, it is. It yet. It's like, because, like, I've been watching Barry. Oh, yeah, I love Barry. <laughs> oh, I've also been binge watching Downton Abbey again because yeah. the movie's coming out. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. And the then I've been, like, messaging my friend Lauren. Because, like, she's the only other person who I know is, like, equally obsessed with Downton Abbey. And it's... Um, and excuse it's, me. No, 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 It's... I see her every day because we work together. Whatever. And so... Do you know how much I love Downton Abbey? All right, I'll start messaging you about it. <laughs> but anyway, it's gotten so bad that she finally caved and started watching it. Yeah. Because I, like, kept sending her messages. Like, I was like, I don't understand what's going on. Like, I was like, I totally forgot about this. Yeah. And, like, that's yeah but anyway yeah uh, euphoria keeps trailering before barry mm-hmm. and i'm like i would not get into this yeah um i definitely think it is something like i'm glad that at the beginning of every episode they kind of have like a written paragraph that like hey this is triggering and this mm-hmm. covers an array of topics but for me um i it, it's gonna sound like very dramatic this statement but i'm speaking like very truthfully um it is probably the best cinematic experience that I've ever had. And it comes from, I'm the type of human being who's like, if I connect so deeply with something, I have to understand the mind of the person who created it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, the director of Euphoria, his intentionality in the, every aspect of the detail of the show um, very much comes out from the artistry and what the show is currently like right now. Um, and there's a lot of like purposes within like why the show exists. Um, one of them obviously being the discussion of talking about so many different predominant issues that like our age group and also specifically like the ones that are younger than us, like my sister and things, or those in high school are facing. Mm -hmm. So you are dealing with topics of everything from drug overdose and addiction and suicide to sexual addiction um talking about the the topics of transgender homosexuality um underage sex anything like you name it it's literally in this show um it's very visual too um nudity wise um but the details of the show and like 
I think are almost like they're necessary in a way to get people to actually realize that this is truly what's going on right, right. now. Yeah. Um, but the other thing too is like the storyline of the main character. Basically, like I should probably go into that. Um, I mean, it's up to you. Yeah. I mean, I think I would probably like it because I love film and cinema, mm-hmm. and I watch an inordinate amount of television. Yeah. And I feel like I would like it. It's just taking the effort to sit down and watch it. Yeah, and, and there's, there's only eight episodes so far. It's yeah, and, I, and I'm the opposite. I know I wouldn't like it just yeah. from like watching the trailers. I'm like, no, I would not like this. Yeah. Can't, can't get well, into the colorist. You disagree on most yeah. things. So. The, the colorist is you insane. You just yelled at me about Downton Abbey and how obsessed you are with Downton Abbey. Well, I am obsessed with Downton Abbey. So I don't know about that. Yeah, the colorist is insane. The yeah. music is I amazing. I love looking at color yeah. of film and the yeah. way that, that they use color. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like the whole thing is literally art, but also there's so much intentionality behind it. Of like the director's like story and personal story is actually mm-hmm. very much intertwined with the overall like storyline itself. Okay. And Rue, who's the main character, That's is Zendaya. played by Zendaya. And this director, and this up. director, um, is like, I know Jacob Alori's in it, but I also know he's the bad guy, he and is. I love him from yeah. the Kissing Booth, and I can't live in a world where he's movie. the yeah. bad guy. Yeah, the director is like a white male, mm-hmm. and so he could have very easily chosen like a white male actor to play his like character, mm-hmm. but instead he went with a black female. Yeah, and um, you know the other characters like they weren't picking people based off of like name base they were picking people based off of one obviously talent and two relation to character okay so like jules is a character on there and jules is transgender and hunter Schaefer, who plays jules transgender okay. um, barbie ferreira whose character um is plus size has gone through a lot of the struggles that her character has mm-hmm. and it goes on and on and on so from like either Struggles or whatever the case may be, majority of those playing those characters were chosen because of their relational aspect to the character. Okay. Um, Zendaya's was more so on just the ability to emotionally connect. Yeah. And like portray that, right. and so it's just like. I've heard lots of good things. Yeah. So I literally can go on for hours about it. I am the type of person that's like, once I understand the person who created it, I then can like figure out the rest of it. Yeah. Um. But, like, I've watched every episode probably three times, and I'm still, like, <laughs> I could watch it all over again because it is just, like, such art to me. But I definitely, like, do tell people when I talk about it, like, if you are triggered by any of those topics, then, like, this might not be the show for you. Right. And I think it's, like, healthy for people to acknowledge if something yeah. is not for them or not. Um, or you just don't like it. Yeah, or you just don't <laughs> No, like it wouldn't be for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, you don't know what I've been watching right now? Like three million things. Downton Uh, I wish. Um, the movie's coming out. I know. True Now's Blood. the time. True. Ooh, I love, I love True Blood. I never watched that. You know, it has a lot of interesting topics about our culture and, um, who's bad and who's good. And it has a lot of, I, I mean, I remember when I first watched it, I was in college mm-hmm. and thinking that it really spoke to a lot of things that we weren't talking about at the mm-hmm. time, at least when it was made. Yeah. I think. And that's the whole premise of it is it's just like, you know, vampires want to be part of culture mm-hmm. of the, of the mainstream culture. They don't want to be on the outside anymore. Also, and I think that that's totally, and you could draw so many parallels yeah. to what's going on right now, just based on this, like, well, stupid and vampire it's got one of the best intros, like, oh, yeah. like, like 
film film wise intros of a show I've ever seen, except maybe the Rube Goldberg intro of um, Elementary, which is a lot of fun to watch. I like that show a lot. So. What you reading? What am I reading? Um, I was reading, or I am reading, Ani DeFranco's autobiography right now, and um, she's amazing. If you don't know who she is, she's an amazing um, American folk artist from Buffalo, New York, and it starts with um, she wrote this beautiful spoken word poem song um, about 9-11 and like being in the city when it happened and touring the country right afterwards and performing. And so it starts with that experience and then she writes out the poem and you can read it for yourself. I mean, I've heard it over and over before. And then it goes into like her life and how she was raised and just her autobiography. When my sister's a huge um, fan slash groupie and has like followed her around the country and loves her. So I highly recommend looking up some line to Franco. I'm going to read that. And then um, it, the book is called Hashtag Murder Trending. And so I work at a public library and we had teen volunteers for summer reading. And this girl asked me, she was like, did you, there was a part in it she didn't get. And I was like, oh, I haven't read it. So the head of our youth collection was like, oh, I read it, but you're right. That part doesn't make sense. So they both came to me. They're like, Ray, read this book. It's really good. It's a lot of fun. And it's basically the premise is very, very, very fictionalized. A uh, reality TV celebrity is elected president. And then a, it was joking. But, um, and then a man named the postman decides to set up Alcatraz 2.0. It's not a joke though. I know. Alcatraz 2.0 and basically what happens if you were a bad mobster or murderer Mm -hmm. you get put there and then they they have serial killers and stuff for hire that they put there with you and then they that's how you get executed for the crimes that you've committed so this one girl is 16 and she wakes up and realizes that um her sister was murdered and they think that she did it and so she kind of goes to trial but she's still processing everything and she gets put on Alcatraz too and it's about her journey and like figuring out like how did this happen to her she didn't murder the person Mm -hmm. and it's really weird because I think of those scenarios for books all the time and I never write them down and now this person has a really like well-known book in the teen youth Mm -hmm. era Um, and then she's got a second one coming out so I was Mm -hmm. like I should write a book what was the part that was confusing um, Can you tell us about spoiling it? Sure. I mean, I guess some character dies, but he didn't die, and they like don't. It doesn't make sense. In oh, the, like, okay. Well, how did he come back or die or yeah. not die? So. Well, since you brought up spoken word, Emily, what's your favorite spoken word? <laughs> oh, um, Emily does spoken word. Yeah. Stop. What is my favorite? Mine is when love arrives. It's cliche, but I love it. Have you ever heard it? I don't think so. Oh my god. It's like these two poets and they're not in a relate while well, she's thinking. They're they're not in a relationship, but they do this poem like in tandem uh-huh. and so it's like they're like when love arrives, I like I knew exactly what love looked like in seventh grade, and then she says what she thought it looked like, and then he says he what he thought it looked like. Mm-hmm. And it's just so beautifully done the way the two of them just like go off of each other. That and it and, and it oh it's just beautiful. I'm a great facilitator, so like I host podcasts. I love hearing other people's mm-hmm. stories. I used to host a free expression club at my undergrad college, mm-hmm. and um, so I would always listen to other people's poetry, mm-hmm. but I very rarely performed my own because I'm a really mean to myself. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I love watching it, and like I'll yeah. write some, but like I never. Yeah, I would never. but I like facilitating. Yeah, yeah. So. Do you have a favorite one? Did you pick one? Oh my gosh. That is so hard. Okay, um, so just say you don't want to pick You one. know what? One that, like, I... I it doesn't have to be your favorite. It could just be no, one that you just want people one, to look up. One, actually, you can't really look it up. Um, 
because it's in a book from a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so Emily will scan the pages. It's a PDF. Yes. Um, but it's the one that, like, recently this past week, like, I've been reading over and over again. I think part of it is because, like, I actually was in the experience with her. Um, but also, she so eloquently is able to put two words the human experience of situations, regardless of if she's been in them or not. Um, and it's called Shots on Broadway. Hmm. And um, Well, you ask your friend, and if she says you can send us a couple pages from it, we'll I'm, put them up. Perfect. I actually have the book, so I can scan it. And if we'll she says it's up. okay, we yeah, don't want to violate copyright laws. It's uh, my friend Lindsay Ponder, by the way. She's like one of the Shout best out poets I've ever... So do you want our listeners to follow you or the coffee shop? You could do both. My personal account very much has, um, I do all film photography. So my entire personal account is all like the film photography that I do here in Detroit. Um, And sometimes I accompany like poetry with it. And then the coffee shop is obviously talking about the ways in which we're involved in the community, the process of what we're doing. Um, the events that are happening in the space, different things like that. So I encourage you to maybe do both. So what are your handles? Uh, at m.stefan is my personal one, E-M.S-T-E-F-F-E-N. And then the coffee shop one is at The Gathering Coffee Co. Awesome. On Instagram, Twitter? Uh, Instagram. I am very much an old soul, so I have one form of social media for everything. And I was like, my coffee shop will be the same. You will have an Instagram, and that is it. Ah. But there's also a website for the coffee shop. Yes, which is, which is gatheringcoffee.com. Okay. Um, it talks a lot more about like our philanthropic mission. It also gives you a way, if you love our mission and what we're doing, to be able to support us by either buying an item for the coffee shop or financially just like sending in a donation. Um, we exist specifically to create like positive impact and change for people in the city so everything from like our dark room to our model that allows us to like give away coffees through the suspended coffee model um from the events that we have to like ultimately our goal is to partner with dps and be able to like facilitate our classes in this space for like our local dps schools because detroit ultimately like the first thing they cut is the art Mm -hmm. programs Um, So we're looking to help, like, fill that need. Um, So if you're at all interested in supporting a space that does that, definitely encourage you to do that. Thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thank you.